0: To listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. My name is Juan, and it's a pleasure to be with you. This. Evening. Uh, I'm usually at Erskineville. And I'd like to start by telling you a story. Uh, I'm sitting with Aria at dinner one night, that's our six year old. And as abrupt as a, as as a six year old does, she says, Daddy, what's your greatest fear? What's your greatest fear? And so, of course, I gave her the ministry answer What's your greatest fear? And it turns out that one of her fears is Bloody Mary, which is some story that seems expressly invented by year six kids in order to torment kindergarten kids, which she was at the time. Some story about a ghost that appears that I'm pretty sure has been around since I was in primary school X number of years ago. But you know, the thing about fear is that you combat fear with love, not data. And so we talked about that, and we talked about how our love for her is bigger, even than this fear she has. But she had another greatest fear. And her other greatest fear was that her teacher would give them, would give the class a surprise test. And she would try it and she would fail. Her greatest fear was that there would be a test and she just would not measure up. Now at this point she's in kindergarten. There aren't surprise tests in kindergarten. There's barely tests at all. And then she says, what's your greatest fear? And you know, I thought about it and I said, you know what, It's my greatest fear is basically the same thing. Maybe not a kindergarten test, but my greatest fear is that at some point in my life, somebody will test me. There'll be some sort of reckoning, and someone will ask me to justify myself for what I've done with my life, and I won't measure up to that standard. And that fear affects my whole life in big ways, and small ways, uh, from the way I introduce myself at at a party to make myself as big and important as I can, to the way that I spend my time to show that I'm not wasting this life, my life isn't misspent. And my guess is that this isn't just me, but for a lot of people we have that fear in big or small ways. The fear that you'll be asked to justify your life and you'll fail. The fear that if you don't have this thing or this spouse or this job or this lifestyle that you won't be okay. And of course you get the thing or the job or the spouse or the lifestyle and you realize that you're still not okay. And so in this passage Jesus answers that fear. He speaks into that fear with a story. Uh, the story we just heard. Because you combat fear with love, Jesus tells us the story of God's love. Three stories, if you were following along in the passage. We'll be focusing mostly on the third, and we'll be talking about this in three sections. We'll walk through the story. We'll talk about how the story shows God's love and how we apply this in our lives today. The story itself, God himself, and ourselves. You have the passage in front of you on your phone or in the Bible in Luke 15, you'll find that helpful. to check what I'm saying. Now, first things first, why does Jesus tell us these stories? It's to give us three portraits of God's love against that fear. See it there in verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them you see what they say? That's the fear. If you're mixing with those kind of people, if you're eating with those kind of people, you're not going to measure up. And so against that, Jesus tells two stories. A man who loses his sheep and leaves the 99 and he goes out to find it and rejoices. A woman who loses a coin and turns her house upside down and when she finds it, she rejoices for that is how God in heaven rejoices over the sinner who repents. And then he tells a third story. It starts like this there in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. Right there, I think you have the stage set for drama, as much drama as you could want. Um, Who here has a brother? Who here has a brother who's caused drama in their life? That's pretty much all the hands, I think. From Cain and Abel right through to Arrested Development, we have stories of brothers who will always try and outdo one another. And we'll hear a bit more about that brother relationship next week. Now, I don't have two sons, but I do have two kids, one son, one daughter. Uh, And our daughter, Aria, I remember when she was born, when she was placed in my arm, this tiny crying thing and this avalanche of love as I looked at her, thinking I would do anything for you and you can't do anything for yourself. And it's such a cliche, but that time goes so fast. So at first you... Celebrate every little achievement from the first time she sleeps through or the first attempts at a word, and then the little achievements snowball into bigger things, the first actual word, the first steps. And then one night you go to sleep and wake up, and she's at preschool, and then she's in a school uniform for school. And she's in year one now, but I can see the rest kind of laid out before me like dominoes. Soon she'll be in high school. Soon she'll start liking boys although she's not allowed to date anyone until she's 25. just want that on the record. And I'll be teaching her to drive a car, and then it will be her 18th birthday, and she'll be an adult who's able to make her own decisions, decide things for herself. And then I think she'll turn to me and she will say, Dad, I wish you were dead. No, that's, that's not what I hope will happen, of course, but that's what happens in the story. Verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. The inheritance that I would get when you die, I want that now. I want you dead now. He takes all the care of the father, all the love of the father, everything that he's been given, the shelter that he's received all those years, and he reduces it to the most base possible request. Thanks, Dad, for everything you've ever done for me, but I wish you were a credit card. And remember, this isn't just a Western society, but an Eastern society, a shame culture. And this shame would have reverberated around the community they lived, reverberated around that son and this family. Even worse, the son takes what he can get, he sells part of the farm, shoveling more shame upon himself, and he leaves, he goes to a distant country, a far country, and he spends everything that he has, all of it wasted. You don't have to go far down King Street to see the multiple ways that a young man with money and not much else will spend himself and spend the money. And not only that, but the country goes into famine in verse 14. So any sort of welfare that he might have begged for is gone. And then here's where we see the depths to which he sinks. Verse 15, he hires himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Jews, of course, couldn't keep pigs or eat pigs or have anything to do with pigs. They were considered unclean. And yet, he is hired to feed the pigs. And not only to feed the pigs, but he finds himself looking over at their food trough with envy because they have it better than he does. Everything good that he's been given has gone. There is no place further that he could go from his father, socially, financially, emotionally, and it takes that for him to come to his senses in verse 17. He's been living in this unreality, pursuing greed and pleasure, dazzled by his own entitlement, and now he comes to himself, realizes how far he has fallen, and so he makes a plan such as it is. He says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. See, he thinks, there is one person who can get me out of this mess, this mess that I've made. Maybe being anything in the house of my father would be better than being the king of this pigsty. So he takes the long walk home. Penniless, shoeless, reciting this apology in his head. What he's going to say when he gets there and he gets close enough to the family farm. And then I love this verse 20. He got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, in every way possible, while he was still a long way off, the father gets up and runs to him. Now this was a a society where men didn't run They were wearing long robes at the time. If you can imagine the Pope hiking up his robes and booking it, that's kind of the picture here. But the Father doesn't care about that awkwardness, what the village will say. He's only got one thing on his mind. He doesn't even let the son get his speech out before he's tangled in his arms. And the son manages to disentangle himself long enough that he can get it out. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but... He doesn't get to the last bit. The father's heard enough, enough to declare a verdict, heard enough to know that he doesn't want a servant, he wants a son. And so he says, bring a robe and a ring and shoes for his feet because my son was dead and now he is alive. So kill the lamb and let's get this party started. But do you remember that question we started with? How does this story... Show us God's love. You've told us this story about a father's love for a truant son, and it's a heartwarming story, but how does this show God's love? Well, it's probably not a surprise to many of you, but this is a picture of God's grace in action. This is a story that shows us how undeserving we are of the love of God because we are the prodigal son. We're the ones who've turned our backs on God, If we start from the foundation that God is the creator God, that he is the one who's given us everything, our life and our health and our body and our brains, nothing we have is not from him. And yet we are the ones who turned away, who said, God, I wish you were dead. Who said, this is rightfully mine, as if that could be the case. And we spent his gifts on everything but him. Even worse, we fool ourselves into thinking we are self-made men or independent women, but there's no such thing, just God-created people. That's who we are. And so at some point it comes, that slap from reality, when we realize that the gift is gone, has been misspent on everything but God, that we've frittered it away on pursuing things destined for landfill or dreams that turn out to be piñatas so beautifully painted but hollow when you crack them open. And that's when you realize that you only have one chance, to take the long road home, to know that it is better to be anything in the house of your father than to be the king of a pigsty. You see, grace starts with knowing there is nothing we can bring. We can misunderstand this, just how little we bring to God when we come before him. Imagine for a moment the prodigal son getting to the gates of the house, getting to his father and saying, look, father, I know I sold the inheritance. That was wrong, my bad. But here, I brought you this handful of pig food and I figure that makes us even. Or imagine this, imagine one of God's children coming to their father and saying, look God, I know I sold the inheritance, but how about I give you a little bit of my money and a couple of hours on Sunday, as long as the sermon doesn't go too long, and we'll call it even. What God wants from you is not something you can bring in your hands. What God wants from you is the repentance that comes when you know there is nothing that you bring in your hands. Grace begins when we know we have nothing. But here's how it continues, with the love of God. The other way we might misunderstand this is we think that grace gets us this far. Maybe it gets us to the door of the house, but we have to earn the rest on good behavior. Maybe deep down you believe that God, what God says to you is you can come into the house, but, oh boy, you better be on your best behavior because three strikes and you're back out. Maybe you believe God has actually taken you back as a servant and not a son. But do you see what the father says? My son was dead, and now he is alive. He rejoices in anyone that comes home, and he loves them, and he never stops. He never stops. And yet, I suspect in a room this size, there are still people thinking, "Okay, Guan, you can say all that stuff about the parable." how big God's grace is, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've done in secret. Or maybe the things done to me. You don't know what's hidden in my heart. And you're right. You're right. I don't know. But God does. God knows every single bit of that. He knows when you've hit rock bottom, when you went to that far country, when you sat with the pigs. And the good news is that this passage tells me that he knows that better than any person ever could, and he still sees you coming down that road, and he runs to put his arms around you. He doesn't stop to say, oh, you went too far this time. He just loves you. He throws his arms around you, and he rejoices in his children coming home. If you are someone who has turned to God in repentance, in Christ, he is not secretly angry with you. He loves you. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, God is not waiting to watch you slip up. He loves you. And if you fear that you do not measure up to God's standard, then God combats that fear with perfect, complete, overwhelming love. He just loves you. And he won't stop. And he is able to do that because Jesus died on the cross. So that forgiveness is complete and total. It's not that he's forgotten your sins or said, oh, they don't matter, I'll just forget about those. It's, he said that they matter so much that my son, I will send my son to die on the cross for you so that I can love you. And maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe you need to hear that the next day as well. So application, what does this story, this picture of God's love mean for us? Uh, three things, I think. We're almost at the end. Firstly, easiest application ever. It means you don't have to do anything. Because let me tell you, I get a little bit suspicious any time a Christian says, okay, what you really have to do as a Christian is you've really got to tell people about Jesus. What you have to do as you, if you're a Christian is you have to be part of a Bible study. If you're a Christian, what you really have to do is now, all those things are good things to do. But if you're using the word have to, if you're using the word must, then you haven't understood grace. Because the only thing you have to do as a Christian is, know you can't do anything. And the good news is when you get that. Because when you do get that, when you understand that, and that's in your heart, When you get that, you won't shut up about the God who saved you despite everything. When you do get that, you'll run through a wall in order to meet with other people who get that. Because why wouldn't you? The problem, I think, is that people see those things that Christians do. do. They see the outworking and they think, oh, that's what makes a good Christian. So I'll just get people to do that and then they'll be... But they're mistaking the effect for the cause. And the cause, the only cause worth mentioning is the grace of God. You know, in my much younger days, I thought it was kind of strange that people would keep going on and on about grace. Maybe that's what you're thinking tonight. Why is he going on about grace? I get this now. Can we talk about something else? But now that I'm a little bit older, I see that that too is part of God's goodness, that we keep coming back to grace, that we keep coming back to see the cross. Because if there's anything after that, then that's what we start to trust in. If there was anything else after that, it would take away from grace itself. Secondly, remind yourself from time to time that you walk with prodigals. Uh, Let's have a check who's listening moment. Take a look around the room. Like physically move your head around and see what I see from up here. It's a bunch of fairly attractive, well-dressed well put together people, you seem like you've got it all together, as far as these eyes can see. But do you know what I see when I put this story from Jesus up to my eyes? I see a bunch of people who've been down in the pigsty. I see a bunch of people who at some point have realized because of sin, everything good you've given has been wasted A bunch of people who have been in that far country, that were far from God and have come home and tasted God's glorious goodness. This is a bunch of prodigals, and so it is with every Christian, every church that's meeting today. And that affects a bunch of people. When you look around and think, I walk with prodigals, that affects a bunch of things, I think, including the way we do church and the way that we welcome others and who we even think can come into the kingdom of God. And it means, I hope at least, that in church we can throw out that fear, that fear that I won't measure up, that I can or can't talk to those people because of what they look like, or that I can or can't tell this person about my struggles with depression or mental health or body image or relationship breakdown, but instead we combat fear with love. And we know we walk with prodigals. We have a story in common. Last thing. I wonder if there's someone in your life who you can tell this story to. I don't want you to tell just anybody, but I wonder if there's somebody in your life who has a PhD in beating themselves up law of averages, if it's not you, it's someone you know, who has that fear that they won't measure up, that they won't ever measure up, and it's so deeply ingrained that maybe they're a perfectionist, or maybe they're the inverse, that they crumble because they know they can't ever measure up to that standard that they think they have to measure up to. God knows I've been there before. And maybe they're Christian, or maybe they're not, it doesn't really matter in terms of this application, but... You know, Jesus has an answer for them here in this story. And it's an answer that only Christianity has. Religi- other religions might try and tell you that fear isn't real or that you just need to do a little bit better or you need to shift your rules. But Christianity has the real right answer here in Luke 15. It starts, a man had two sons. Because here's a picture of God's love, a love not bound by moral standards or religious rules. I mean, if you wanted a story to tell for the next time somebody asks, so why are you a Christian? Maybe you could start with, a man has two sons. Because I think this story could actually make this culture stop in its tracks because this is a culture permeated by that fear, that fear of measuring up. And if we are a church that speaks into that culture, with this story of grace, of the Father's love, That would stop a culture in its tracks. So next time someone asks, why are you a Christian? You could try telling them this story and then try telling them this is a picture of God's love for us in Jesus that is so complete that you come back to it again and again. That here is a God who accepts you because you bring nothing in your hands. That here is a God who rejoices whenever his children come back home and that you too can come back home. Will you pray with me? Father, we rejoice as you rejoice, for we were once dead and now we are alive. We were once lost and now in Christ we are found, for we were once in that far country and you found us and brought us home. So help us to live in that grace. Help us to see your glory. Help us to look upon you and live. Amen.